Hello, I'm Greg. Welcome back to the Talkback series. This one for the month of January focused on Inappropriate Conversations number 150. About a week ago, I released part one of what I think is going to be a six-part series, taking a three-and-a-half-hour podcast into more manageable chunks. And today will be one of the bigger of them, as I move from the introductory material that I shared at first with a brand new introduction recorded for it here in the Talkbacks, with getting really into the show itself, which is looking at the scriptures in some detail, at length and in context. And this one actually starts with some claims about more detail I could have gone into. Probably easily could have been a four, four and a half hour show. Instead, I skipped over things which I had covered recently in other shows, and I'll make a decision by the end of January or early February whether I just want to share those other inappropriate conversations shows in their entirety. I did podcasts before where I talked about the story of Peter in the book of Acts and uh, the Sermon on the Mount from a contemporary translation's perspective or even Song of Solomon. We'll get there when we get there, but for now living up to the promise of a more quick intro this time. This talk back for Inappropriate Conversations number 150 picks up with part two and picks up with the scriptures. I've talked a little bit about the the nature of this show and the fact that it's going to be a very long one. And one of the things I'm not going to do, though, I've I've still cut some corners. There are three chapters in Matthew's Gospel that I believe need to be shared and need to be read aloud a lot more often than they are today, and I refer to them regularly on the show. I feel that passionately about them. The Sermon on the Mount can be found in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. But based on the other material I want to cover today, I'm not going to read those in their entirety. I'm going to get to other passages in their entirety. Instead, to provide some context for one of the core beliefs that I've got, and one of the core mistakes I think you find in a lot of modern Christianity— I am going to read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 24. All the other verses I've shared today will be the Good News translation, but this one I want to share from the New American Standard Bible. I have some issues with this translation, particularly with the way this translation has handled some of the passages in the Torah, but it doesn't do a terrible job in the Gospels, and it is one of the very best word-for-word translations, so where political influence hasn't led mistakes to be made in the rendering of the text, between the version uh, of the NASB in 1971 versus the one that came out in a very uh, with a lot of mistakes in it in 1995. This one, I think, is consistent in either one of those. And again, being a word-for-word translation seems like the best way to go here with the Sermon on the Mount, picking up a section of Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. 
but whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable before going to court. Whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be called guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into a fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. These are the words of Jesus, and unfortunately words that people have confused over the years. For Jesus uses expressions, both here in the Sermon on the Mount, and later in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 24, in the section called the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talks about the end of all things, using expressions and phrases like, until heaven and earth pass away. The Jews of the time would have realized that he was talking about what we would describe now as the Jewish age, but Christians coming along, oh, about 1,850 years later, got it completely confused and thought that Jesus was talking about the destruction of the universe. You'll note, though, here that Paul was not confused. Paul consistently tells people there are parts of the law that do not need to be abided by, significant parts. In fact, he refers to the entire Jewish law as having gone away. Jesus, on numerous occasions, found himself in trouble with the Pharisees, and it's, it's a traditional evangelical Christian trope to say that when Jesus was violating those laws, he wasn't really violating those laws, because those laws are sacred and sacrosanct and can't be violated ever. Um, Judas, Jesus was talking about the real law as opposed to what the Pharisees were putting together as the fake laws, but I don't think so. When Jesus was healing during the Sabbath, there's no question about what the Sabbath was, and there's no question about what the Old Testament says about working on the Sabbath. Jesus was talking about laws not being as important as people. This line between what does it mean to be faithful in terms of holiness, keeping myself pure and clean for the hope of going to heaven, or what does it mean to be faithful in the sense of compassion? That Jesus never put rules above people. And we're going to find out as we get through this particular inappropriate conversation, manifesto of sorts, that the scriptures bear this out loudly and clearly. But first, let me just focus in on one simple phrase. Again, a phrase that many Christians find confusing. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that nothing would go away until everything was accomplished, until everything was finished. He used words like fulfill and accomplish. What do we mean by this? How will we know that Jesus completed his mission? Well, John 19, verses 28 through 30, I believe gives us the answer. Jesus knew that by now everything had been completed. And in order to make the scripture come true, he said, I am thirsty. A bowl was there, full of cheap wine. So a sponge was soaked in the wine, put on a stalk of hyssop, and lifted up to his lips. Jesus drank the wine and said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Tetelestai. It is finished. All is accomplished. The debt is paid. Stick a fork in it. This is the end. All is done. Finished. Tetelestai. Some Christians openly suggest that all is not finished, 
that Jesus didn't accomplish what he set out to accomplish, at least not yet. The debt may have been paid in principle, but that check might still bounce. Hold on to your fork. Have it ready, but don't stick it anywhere just yet. Some even question whether Jesus is the chosen one, or if that term refers to something else. All of these Tim LaHaye-style, left-behind-gospel-type people seem to think that the sacrifice that Jesus made was not really going to be sufficient, that for his interpretation of the book of Revelations and other passages in the apocalyptic writings of Scripture, for his interpretation, the LaHaye version, to come true, Israel has to become a state again, it has to become a Jewish religious state again, it has to be unified where there's no outsiders living in Jerusalem, and the temple has to be rebuilt, and more sacrifices have to be made because Jesus Christ just wasn't good enough. Now, Lehi wouldn't word it that way, but who are we kidding? That's what he meant. Some even question whether Jesus is the chosen one at all. Maybe it's the Jews, or the nation of Israel. Maybe it's another nation, a Christian nation, as they tend to describe the United States of America. But it just doesn't mean the Messiah. It doesn't mean Jesus Christ. This begs the question, though. Who is Abraham's seed, as the saying go? Who is his descendant? What is it that links everything the Old Testament says with New Testament, with the theology presented to us by many people, including the Apostle Paul? Paul sums it up pretty well. In the letter to Galatians chapter 3, I want to start with verses 6 through 18, because it helps us answer this question, who is Abraham's seed? Who is the descendant? Consider the experience of Abraham, Paul writes. As the scripture says, he believed God, and because of his faith, God accepted him as righteous. You should realize then that the descendants, the real descendants of Abraham, are the people who have faith. The scripture predicted that God would put the Gentiles right with himself, through faith. And so the scripture announced the good news to Abraham. Through you, God will bless all people. Abraham believed and was blessed. And so all who believe are blessed as he was. Those who depend on obeying the law live under a curse. For the scripture says, whoever does not always obey everything that is written in the book of the law is under God's curse. Everything that is written in the book of God's law is under a curse. Now, it is clear that no one is put right with God by means of the law, because the scripture says, only the person who is put right with God through faith shall live. But the law has nothing to do with faith. Instead, as the scripture says, whoever does everything the law requires shall live. But by becoming a curse for us, Christ has redeemed us from the curse the law brings. For the scripture says, anyone who is hanged on a tree is under God's curse. Christ did this in order that the blessing which God promised to Abraham might be given to the Gentiles by means of Christ Jesus, so that through faith we might receive the Spirit promised by God. My friends, I am going to use an everyday example. When two people agree on a matter and sign an agreement, no one can break it or add anything to it. Now God made his promises to Abraham and to his descendant. The scripture does not say the plural descendants, meaning many people, but the singular descendant meaning only one, namely Christ. What I mean is that God has made a covenant with Abraham and promised to keep it. The law, which was given 430 years later, cannot break that covenant and cancel God's promise. For if God's gift depends upon the law, then it no longer depends upon his promise. However, it was because of his promise 
that God gave the gift to Abraham. Galatians chapter 3 verses 6 through 18, making clear that the descendant, the seed, Abraham's seed is Jesus. It's the Christ. It's the Messiah. There are no more chosen people. The chosen person was Jesus. And those who have faith in Jesus have accomplished associating ourselves with him and taking advantage of this chosenness. Jumping further down to Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. But before the time for faith came, the law kept us all locked up as prisoners until this coming faith should be revealed. And so the law was in charge of us until Christ came in order that we might be put right with God through faith. Now, now that the time for faith is here, the law is no longer in charge of us. It is through faith that all of you are God's children, in union with Christ Jesus. You were baptized into union with Christ, and now you are clothed, so to speak, with the life of Christ himself. So there is no difference between Jew and Gentiles, between slaves and free people, between men and women. You are all one in union with Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are the descendants of Abraham and will receive what God has promised. What Paul is saying here is, what I've been saying all along, and what I often get accused of saying selectively, misreading, twisting the scriptures. I don't know, I'm twisting them just about as much as the Apostle Paul did. Christ fulfilled the law. The law is gone. Christ has superseded the law. He's abolished it. All is accomplished. His work is finished. Heaven and earth did not pass away prior to the point in time when Jesus Christ fulfilled everything. He came to earth to do. And if you're hanging on to those laws, if those Old Testament laws somehow supersede anything Jesus commanded us, or have some equal importance with what Jesus did, then maybe you're thinking that Jesus didn't accomplish what Paul and Peter and James and all the rest of the apostles saw with their own two eyes and know he accomplished. James provides us a parallel passage in the one letter in the New Testament we have from that author. Paul talks about this notion of all the law. Here's what James says about it. Chapter 2, starting with verse 8. You will be doing the right thing if you obey the law of the kingdom, which is found in Scripture. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. But if you treat people according to their outward appearance... You are guilty of sin, and the law condemns you as a lawbreaker. Whoever breaks one commandment is guilty of breaking them all. For the same one who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. And even if you do not commit adultery, you become a lawbreaker if you commit murder. Speak and act as people who will be judged by the law that sets us free. For God will not show mercy when he judges the person who has not been merciful. But mercy triumphs over judgment. There's another parallel passage from Paul's letter to the Romans. I'm going to revisit this particular chapter a little bit later, but I want to focus on how it ties in, not just with what Paul told the church in Galatia and what James wrote, but it kind of kind of triangulates the notion. Here in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, be under obligation to no one. The only obligation you have is to love one another. Whoever does this has obeyed the law, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not desire what belongs to someone else. All these and any others besides are summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you love others, you will never do them wrong. To love, then, is to obey the whole 
law. So here we have James saying that you'll be doing the right thing if you love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Paul saying that loving your neighbor as you love yourself is obeying the whole law. Even if you're loving your neighbor by healing them on the Sabbath, Jesus said, yes, I'm going to heal people who are hurt on the Sabbath because that is loving them and loving them fulfills all of the law, regardless of what the Ten Commandments say about honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy. Jesus told the Pharisees, he says, I, I know your hearts. If you have a donkey that has fallen into a well, you're going to get it out on the Sabbath day. You're not going to leave it there to die. You're certainly not going to leave it there to wail and moan for the entire afternoon long. You're going to do something about it. And this is people he felt didn't have much love in their heart to begin with. Well, how strongly did Paul feel about this notion that the law was gone and that Christ had set us free? Did he feel so strongly about it that he might confront a group of people and actually dare them to castrate themselves to publicly announce that their commitment was still to the law? Well, let's find out. Returning back to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, readings uh, from 1 through 15, those verses. Here's Paul. Freedom is what we have. Christ has set us free. Stand then as free people and do not allow yourselves to become slaves again. Listen, I, Paul, tell you that if you allow yourselves to be circumcised, it means that Christ is of no use to you at all. Once more, I warn that any man who allows himself to be circumcised, as he is obliged to obey the whole law. Those of you who try to be put right with God by obeying the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You are outside God's grace. As for us, our hope is that God will put us right through him. And this is what we wait for by the power of God's spirit working through our faith. For we are in union with Christ Jesus. Neither circumcision nor lack of it makes any difference at all. What matters is faith that works through love. You were doing so well. Who made you stop obeying the truth? How did he persuade you? It was not done by God who calls you. It only takes a little yeast to make the whole batch of dough rise, as they say. But I still feel confident about you. Our life in union with the Lord makes me confident that you will not take a different view, and that whoever is upsetting you will be punished by God. But as for me, my friends, if I continue to preach that circumcision is necessary, why am I still being persecuted? If that were true, then my preaching about the cross of Christ would be no trouble. I wish that the people who are upsetting you would go all the way. Let them go on and castrate themselves. As for you, my friends, you were called to be free. But do not let this freedom become an excuse for letting your physical desires control you. Instead, let love make you serve one another. For the whole law is summed up in one commandment. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. But if you act like wild animals, hurting and harming each other, then watch out or you will completely destroy one another. So here is Paul, over and over again, saying that loving your neighbor as you love yourself fulfills all of the law. It's the whole of the law. It is it in its entirety. And yet when I tell people this, even people with whom I have a great faith relationship, pastors, for example, they express a worry that, oh, you know, all this love talk, what's all that about? Well, you know, it's about Jesus. It's about Paul. It's about James it's about Peter. It's about Luke. That's what the love talk is all about. But I've heard, you know, recently, a pastor friend of mine from Cleveland say, you know, one of the real risks is that if you're talking too much about, you know, the whole of the law being summed up through love, what do you do then in terms of maintaining some sort of order in society? 
What do you do to, to set some sort of sexual standards? How do you avoid some of the problems we have in our society with some of the issues related to becoming a little bit unmoored from those Old Testament ideas? And what I would suggest is that those Old Testament ideas were inevitably going to be rejected by modern society. Jesus knew this more than 2,000 years ago and gave us a couple of commandments he wanted us to use as our anchor instead that would help and guide us and make sure that we wouldn't be exploiting people, taking advantage of them, um, doing some of the other things which are clearly wrong, um, sexual crime, sexual violence, and ripping families apart. Well, I strongly reject the notion of the religious right that love means we have to hate certain things or even certain people or do hateful things that they would certainly feel were hateful, whether we say they're hate or not. No. But love is a much more complex concept than simply, hey, if it feels good, do it. Love talks in terms of doing things that make a sacrifice on behalf of each other, that serve one another. And Paul cages this notion of letting love make you serve one another with the opposite idea of making sure that you don't just become wild animals hurting and harming each other by going out and getting what's yours. So how does Jesus describe this kind of love? This love that might be put under the heading of love that serves one another. Because Paul never gets far away from what Jesus taught. Jesus teaches us in a passage that ironically gets referred to by scholars as the Great Judgment. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 to 46. This is Jesus speaking. When the Son of Man comes as King, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his royal throne, and all the people of all the nations will be gathered before him. Then he will divide them into two groups, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the righteous people at his right, and the others at his left. Then the king will say to the people on his right, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, come and possess the kingdom which has been prepared for you ever since the creation of the world. I was hungry, and you fed me, thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you received me in your homes, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me, in prison, and you visited me. The righteous will then answer him, when, Lord, did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we ever see you a stranger and welcome you in our homes, or naked and clothe you? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will reply, I tell you, whenever you did it for one of the least important of these followers of mine, you did it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Away from me, you that are under God's curse, Away to the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, but you would not feed me. Thirsty, but you would not give me a drink. I was a stranger, but you would not welcome me in your homes. Naked, but you would not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, but you would not take care of me. Then they will answer him. When, Lord, did we ever see you? Hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and we would not help you. The king will reply, I tell you, whenever you refuse to help one of the least important ones, you refused to help me. These then will be sent off to eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to eternal life. This is what Jesus says about loving one another, loving one another in a way that means serving one another. And just to stop and pause for a moment here, I have talked about this concept that Jesus gave to us, these commandments of loving God and neighbor as being, first off, 
the replacement for the law. Second off, the fulfillment of the law. Third, the rest of the law has been wiped away by what Christ accomplished on the cross. And I hear people tell me from time to time that I'm selectively reading scripture. Well, I've shared what Paul said, but some people say, well, that's just one passage of Paul. No, Paul says it repeatedly. Paul says it in conjunction with things that James say. They're consistent with each other. And the concept that he offered in the book of Galatians chapter 5, for example, consistent with what Jesus said in the passage that we know is the great judgment. We will be, as Christians, judged by how well we took care of the sick, the homeless, the hungry, the thirsty, the needy, the prisoner. That's the standard. And when you look at the state of modern Christianity today, I hear more arguments from people on the religious right about how we shouldn't be spending any time or energy on people like those sick people, those homeless people, those hungry people, those underemployed people, those unemployed people, those economically disadvantaged people, those immigrants, those strangers, that it it shocks the sensibility to wonder how they could possibly be reading the same Bible that I read and how they could speak had the temerity to speak about their own point of view being some kind of a high-minded understanding of Scripture. If you have a high understanding of Scripture, if you think it's perfect and flawless, if it's the infallible Word of God that has no contradictions and gives us the final answer for everything that we face as humans living in this life, if following what the Word of God says to the letter is one of the key ways of satisfying the requirements of the righteousness of God for entry at one point into the kingdom of heaven— to hear the words from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, it's the stuff I've just been sharing that we've got to do. And it's the stuff I've just been sharing that we so consistently fail to do. No passage in John's Gospel is quoted more by both sides on questions related to capital punishment or abortion or even homosexuality here in the last four or five years. It keeps cropping up is one of the passages that is viewed by scholars as being maybe the last section to make it into John's Gospel. There are versions in some of the ancient texts that do not include the first 11 chapters of John 8. But here are those chapters, and I think most people will recognize them almost immediately. They're they're well known. Then everyone went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early the next morning, he went back to the temple. All the people gathered around him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The teachers of the law and Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught committing adultery, and they made her stand before them all. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. In our law, Moses commanded that such a woman must be stoned to death. Now, what do you say? They said this to trap Jesus so that they could accuse him. But he bent over and wrote on the ground with his finger. As they stood there, asking him questions, he straightened up and said to them, Whichever one of you has committed no sin may throw the first stone at her. Then he bent over again and wrote on the ground. When they heard this, they all left, one by one, the older ones first. Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there. He straightened up and said to her, Where are they? Is there no one left to condemn you? No one, sir, she answered. Well then, Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, but do not sin again. This notion of go and sin no more has been used by many people. The the last section of the last part of the 11th verse, not even a verse in and of itself, 
has been viewed by many people to trump the lesson that Jesus was teaching throughout the entire rest of the passage. Jesus is telling us the kind of judgment that he's looking for, judgment that shows compassion for those people who've made mistakes. But when you have conversations with people about women who've had abortions or people who are engaged in in homosexual relations, people who have um, homosexual orientation, you hear this talk about the only thing that matters in all of John chapter 8. In fact, sometimes you'd swear the only thing that matters in the entire gospel of John is this notion of go and sin no more. I'm going to come later to some sections which talk about situations where Jesus didn't always say go and sin no more. We act as if that's how he always handled things. In fact, you encounter people from time to time who misread scripture by adding that verse almost every time Jesus encounters somebody who's being accused by someone else. We'll get to it as we go. But there's no doubt this is one passage where Jesus makes the recommendation that you've been set up, young woman. You've been trapped by a group of Pharisees who may have actually been engaged in setting up the situation where you were lured into an act of adultery because the Pharisees show up before Jesus with only one of the two people that Mosaic law might suggest gets stoned to death. The other one was completely missing. That in and of itself raises a lot of suspicion. So if nothing else, he's telling her, don't be a fool. Don't get fooled again. But Jesus actually gave a much more affirmative answer to the concept of what it is we're supposed to do. So even in this John chapter 8 passage, Jesus is still telling us what we're not supposed to do. We're not supposed to use the law at the expense of compassion. We're not supposed to judge in a hypocritical way. But what does he say we should do instead? We find this in what I may consider to be the single most well-known passage in all of the Gospels. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37, better known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. But the most important concepts actually come before the parable, starting with verse 25. A teacher of the law came up and tried to trap Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to receive eternal life? Jesus answered him, what do the scriptures say? How do you interpret them? You know, Jesus thinks he's about to be trapped when he answers a question with a question, when he turns the onus back on the person who is trying to uh, set a snare. The man answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. You are right, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Note, the teacher of the law has asked Jesus a question of what he has to do to receive eternal life. We can debate whether that that phrase, receive eternal life, means get to heaven, or whether it means be part of the kingdom of God that's here among us now. We can argue about whatever it means, but it's clearly something that was very important, both to the teacher of the law and to Jesus. And Jesus tells him, loving God and loving your neighbor is what you need to do. Not that plus anything else. Do this, Jesus says, and you will live. Period. Full stop. Simple as that. Nothing more. But the teacher of the law, picking up verse 29, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus answered, There once was a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, when robbers attacked him, stripped him, and beat him up, leaving him half dead. It so happened that a priest was going down that road, but when he saw the man, he walked by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite also came there, went over and looked at the man, and then walked on by on the other side. 
But a Samaritan who was traveling that way came upon the man, and when he saw him, his heart was filled with pity. He went over to him, poured oil and wine on his wounds, and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own animal and took him to an inn, where he took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Take care of him, he told the innkeeper, and when I come back this way, I will pay you whatever else you spend on him. And Jesus concluded, In your opinion, which of these three acted like a neighbor toward the man attacked by the robbers? The teacher of the law answered, The one who was kind to him. Jesus replied, You go then and do the same. Now, it's important, and this may be old hat for people who've heard a sermon based around the Good Samaritan before, but it's worth noting that as Jesus is telling this story, not to just one teacher of the law, one scribe, he's telling this to a large group of people who were overhearing him, and they had to have been, well, hanging on his every word, because we talk about Jesus being the great healer, the great physician, God himself, son of God. But among other things, he was a great storyteller. And you could just imagine this Jewish audience hanging on every word saying, oh, man, this guy got beat up. He's left half dead. What's going to happen to him? And a priest comes by and you can just imagine the crowd saying, hey, great. You know, he's in the hands of the right people now. And how shocked they must have been to hear Jesus telling the story about the priest being so concerned about his own personal holiness the risk of what would happen if he touched a dead body, if he was taking care of the man who was half dead and the man cashed in the other half and died on the spot. And now the priest was going to have to go through an elaborate cleansing ritual to actually be able to do his job. So the priest makes a judgment call, says, hey, I could take care of this guy, but then I won't be able to do. It's like all of us who are driving to work on a busy morning with a meeting waiting for us first thing as soon as we get there. Maybe a little doubt about how well prepared we are for that meeting. And as we drive by, we pass a couple of cars that have been in a fender bender. And what do we do? We keep on driving. We trust somebody else is going to take care of it. Because I can't get my job done if I'm the one who stops and waits there for the police to show up. Now, it's perhaps less of a big deal than it used to be. The era of the cell phone makes it much more, um, much easier for all of us to just trust that somebody is going to just pick up the call, make that phone call. Even driving down the road, it's not wise or well advised, but even driving down the road, you could call 911 and report an accident. But back then, you really couldn't. And this priest had to make a decision. So the crowd would be listening and say, well, okay, well, here's another person from good Jewish standing, a Levite. He's going to show up. And their hopes might have been raised again because they knew the priest walked by on the other side. And they were disheartened by that. But the Levite is, he's walking over there. He's, he's heading in the direction of the hurt man. But he makes the same call for perhaps some of the same reasons, crosses by on the other side of the road. Note that we don't know much about this victim. The victim is probably clearly not a Samaritan. Because it's noteworthy that the Samaritan, Jesus' point is that this very unlikely person, this person who was not considered a part of the, really part of the good standing of Judaism, would have stepped up and saved the day. So I think we're led to believe that the victim here is probably a good Jewish citizen in desperate need of help and not getting help from people that God had appointed to the tasks of taking care of his people. Instead, that help comes from the unlikeliest source, a Samaritan. How unlikely is it that a Samaritan would help out? Well, you wonder, when you're reading passages, whether we couldn't interpret some of the attitudes in the American South from white people toward black people as an indication of how Jews might have felt toward Samaritans and how Samaritans reacted in reply. 
The passage I look to, to answer the question of how the Samaritans felt about the Jews, is John chapter 4, verse 1 through 30. Jesus and the disciples take a detour through Samaria, beginning with the first verse. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was winning and baptizing more disciples than John. Actually, Jesus himself did not baptize anyone, only his disciples did. So when Jesus heard what was being said, he left Judea and went back to Galilee. On his way there, they had to go through Samaria. They had to go through Samaria. In Samaria, they came to a town called Sychar, which was not far from the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by the trip, sat down by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw some water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink of water. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The woman answered him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. So how can you ask me for a drink? Jews will not use the same cups and bowls that Samaritans use. I mentioned earlier, think of the parallel to the American South. I think you get the drift. Jesus answered, If only you knew what God gives and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you life-giving water. Sir, the woman said, You don't have a bucket, and the well is deep. Where would you get that life-giving water? It was our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well. He and his children and his flocks all drank from it. You don't claim to be greater than Jacob, do you? Jesus answered, Those who drink this water will get thirsty again, but those who drink the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring, which will provide them with life-giving water and give them eternal life. Sir, the woman said, give me that water. Then I will never be thirsty again, nor will I ever have to come to the well to draw water. Go and call your husband, Jesus told her, and come back. I don't have a husband, she answered. Jesus replied, You are right when you say you don't have a husband. You have been married to five men, and the man you live with now is not really your husband. You have told the truth. I see you are a prophet, sir, the woman said. My Samaritan ancestors worshipped God on this mountain, but you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we should worship God. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time will come when people will not worship the Father either on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans do not really know whom you worship, but we Jews know whom we worship, because it is from the Jews that salvation comes. But the time is coming, and is already here, when by the power of God's Spirit people will worship the Father as He really is, offering Him the true worship that He wants. God is Spirit, and only by the power of His Spirit can people worship Him as He really is. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah will come, and when he comes he will tell us everything. Jesus answered, I am he, I who am talking with you. At that moment, Jesus' disciples returned, and they were greatly surprised to find him talking with a woman. But none of them said to her, What do you want? or asked him, Why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went back to town, and said to the people there, Come and see the man who told me everything I have ever done. Could he be the Messiah? So they left town and went to Jesus. There are many things to note here in this passage. First, 
You hear this concept from time to time among um, active atheists uh, in particular that nowhere in the Bible does Jesus claim to be God or claim to be the Son of God or claim to be the Messiah. The argument is ridiculous on its face, frankly. And here we are in John chapter 4 with Jesus basically telling a woman as bluntly as you possibly can, I am he. The one talking with you is the Messiah. I am the one who is going to be the source of worshiping God in spirit and truth. So we can dismiss that argument. It makes no sense whatsoever. But there's a couple of other things. What is missing in this passage of John chapter 4? There is more where Jesus talks to the disciples and explains to them about the harvest. But really, the woman goes, shares the good news that she has seen the Messiah. The people in town go to see Jesus for themselves, partly because they don't believe the testimony of a woman, and certainly not this woman. But Jesus, for the first time in his ministry, commissions and sends someone out to share the actual good news of who he is. And that person is not just a woman. A woman that even by our modern standards would probably be somebody that the church would say is mired in a pattern of sexual sin. We don't really hear often terms like adulteress and fornicator, but those words might have applied back in the day. But what's missing from the passage? What does Jesus not say? He does not tell her to sin no more. He doesn't send her away with a proclamation that she's allowed to share this good news, but first she must promise to go and uh, give up her um, sins and do not sin again. He doesn't use that phrase with her. He simply sends her out. This is the same Jesus, mind you, that in Mark's gospel spends most of his time early in his ministry, and this was early in his ministry, most of his time telling people, don't tell people who I am, don't tell people where I am, don't say what I've done. Keep this healing between you and me. He didn't need to be traveling through Judea and Israel, swamped by people who had perhaps caught on too quickly that he was actually the Messiah. But this was his one trip through Samaria, perhaps, his one shot at reaching the Samaritan people, and he didn't tell her either to keep his identity a secret or to go and sin no more. In fact, he emphatically told her that he was God incarnate and let her go, to spread the word far and wide. So this notion that every time Jesus forgives somebody's sins or every time he overlooks their sins or empowers them to perform ministry, he has to give them that stern warning that they've got to give up their bad behaviors. Theoretically, this woman went home that same night to the man with whom she wasn't married after a pattern of at least five previous marriages. He didn't tell her she wasn't allowed to share that she'd met the Messiah until she first spent a year separate from the guy that she's living in sin with, and only after they got married after that year of separation to prove that they were truly chaste. None of these concepts that we hear in modern traditional Christianity, this notion coming out of the tradition, has anything to do with Jesus Christ. Jesus took a different approach. So if what's not there is the concept of go and don't sin anymore, not that he's actually telling her to go and have a party and, you know, you know, ravage the land and steal from people. He's not telling her that she's not under the burden to behave as if she's seen God incarnate. I think Jesus is comfortable with the fact that the fact that she knows she's seen God incarnate is probably enough. That that's a, uh, well, a road to Damascus experience. If we were talking about Paul, we'll come to him a little bit later. Now, what's there is this concept of inness versus outness. Jesus went to a place where he was interacting with people who for generations had been told that they were the outcast, 
They were out. They weren't going to make it. During a time of exile, they had intermingled with the religious beliefs and the traditions of the people that the Jews were told to stay away from. But because everyone else was taken as conquest into a faraway land, this group of Samaritans did whatever they had to do to survive. And they were judged very harshly for it when the Jews who had tried their very best to keep the traditions came back from exile having struggled to keep the traditions all the time. They didn't take too kindly to those people who would just let those traditions slide. So there was a good, strong concept of Samaritans being out, outcast, the least of these, unwanted, unworthy, living in the cycle of perpetual sin handed down from generations before. And Jesus erases that and replaces it with this concept of inness, that you can be, perhaps, you could be homosexual and still have God's Holy Spirit living and moving within you and leading you to perform acts of unmistakable ministry in Jesus' name. This is perhaps the biggest mistake that people who find themselves on the conservative side of the political spectrum make when it comes to questions of homosexuals in the church. That this notion that I put out there of people barring the door and and uh, setting up sort of a caste system of how you're allowed to participate and how you're not truly fully a Christian. We're, we don't want to ordain people who are gay. We want to defrock ministers who marry couples who are gay. We want to set this standard up of who's good enough and who's not good enough. And we need to come to recognize that in the Gospels, here in, in the Gospel of John, but throughout the others as well, chronologically starting in the Gospel of John, Jesus begins to completely dismantle this notion we have of inness versus outness. Jesus is telling us that if I have called you, you are a disciple. That a Christian is somebody who is engaged in Christian ministry. Somebody who has felt the touch of God. They're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And we make a mistake when we assume that if somebody has made this decision in their life, or had this mistake in their life, or is dealing with what we decide is a sin in their life, that they can't possibly be a Christian. What percentage of Christians are perfect? The answer is zero. So how does Jesus explain this to us? Well, in a previous inappropriate conversation called RSVP, going all the way back, I think maybe to the first year, roughly the first year of the show, I shared a message that I actually shared from the pulpit and church dealing with the next couple of scripture passages I'm going to share. And when I talked earlier about this notion of repetition, it just can't be true that an inappropriate conversation shows a story can only be told one time. I've actually told a few of the most important stories in my life multiple times from different angles. This time I'm going to be sharing a couple of scripture passages in the same way that I did them before. But I think it's important because it ties in here. Because one of the things I was going to do in talking about saying, hey, have we shoved Christ into a closet of homophobia? Maybe we have, and maybe it's time to let him out of that closet. Because I think that Jesus demonstrated, if only in this first section I'm going to cover with this woman in the well, he's shown that he can do miraculous things in the lives of people who have not done things what we as Christians would call the right way. Perhaps the most popular chapters in all of the Bible are John chapter 3 and John chapter 14. I do intend to get to John 3 later, but now is the right time for me to veer into John 14 verses 1 through 10. And some of the elements of this, I think you'll recognize, even if you've never stepped foot in a church before, these are very well-known verses. Do not be worried and upset, Jesus told them. Believe in God and believe also in me. 
There are many rooms in my father's house, and I am going to prepare a place for you. I would not tell you this if it were not so. And after I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you there myself, so that you will be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way to get there? Jesus answered him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except by me. Now that you have known me, he said to them, you will know my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, that that is all we need. Jesus answered, For a long time I have been with you all, yet you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why then do you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe, Philip, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I have spoken to you, Jesus said to his disciples, do not come from me. The Father who remains in me does his own work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. If not, believe because of the things I do. This is one of those passages where people are quick to truck out that what Jesus is saying here in this phrase, no one comes to the Father but by me, is saying that everybody who has ever lived and ever will live who is not a Christian, maybe even a Christian within the narrow band of my denomination. You sometimes hear Roman Catholics talk about this notion of the way being just their way, and all of these Protestants are lost forever. And, of course, it's not hard to find certain Protestant groups who feel exactly the same way about Roman Catholicism. And there was a previous schism before the Protestant Reformation, 500-plus years earlier, between what we now call Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. No, it's not talking about denominational distinctions. It's not even talking about what we call religious distinctions. When Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but my, by me, he's answering the question, how will I get there? And Jesus is saying, in the most literal way you can imagine, I am the way. He's not saying, I am the roadblock stopping anybody who doesn't say the magic words from getting past me. He's saying, I am the way. And I, as a Christian, believe in the providence of God. I believe that Jesus can save whomever Jesus wants to save. And that Jesus not only will, but has saved whomever Jesus wants to save. This is what Jesus means when he says, I am the way. But he also paves the way for a conversation about this notion of inness versus outness. Because notice that in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, Jesus begins to dismantle this notion of the caste system that was in place between Jews and Samaritans. Begins to hint at what was going to happen with the Gentiles later in terms of dismantling this notion of there being an in-group and an out-group. But so many Christians today read John chapter 14 as being, well, exactly that a dividing line, a caste system between who's in and who's out. What Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24, I think settles any doubt about what Jesus meant about whether or not he was only speaking to the Jews and whether or not today we could think of Jesus as being only capable of saving Christians. I agree with the book by Rob Bell and Don Golden, which from its title alone tells you what I'm thinking here in terms of the title of the book is Jesus Wants to Save Christians Too. It is not only true that I believe that Jesus only saves Christians, I don't believe Jesus only saves people, that some denominational litmus test would look at it and say, well, because you've met all these criteria, you're a Christian, therefore Jesus is allowed to save you. 
We should never be talking as believers about what our Lord is allowed to do. Our Lord is allowed to do anything he wants to do. But so it's, it's not only that, but we start getting into this notion of, of applying our own litmus test. Here's what Luke says in chapter 14. One Sabbath, Jesus went to a meal at the home of one of the leading Pharisees, and people were watching Jesus closely. A man whose legs and arms were swollen came to Jesus, and Jesus spoke up and asked the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, Does our law allow a healing on the Sabbath or not? But they would not say a thing. Jesus took the man, healed him, and sent him away. Then he said to them, If any one of you had a child or an ox that happened to fall in a well on the Sabbath, would you not pull it out at once on the Sabbath itself? But they were not able to answer him about this. Jesus noticed how some of the guests were choosing the best places. So he told this parable to all of them. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place. It could happen that someone more important than you has been invited, and your host, who invited both of you, would have to come and say to you, let him have this place. Then you would be embarrassed and have to sit in the lowest place. Instead, when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that your host will come to you and say, come on up, my friend, to a better place. This will bring you honor in the presence of all the other guests. For those who make themselves great will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be made great. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a lunch or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and in this way you will be paid for what you did. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they are not able to pay you back. God will repay you on the day the good people rise from death. When one of the guests sitting at the table heard this, he said to Jesus, How happy are those who will sit down at the feast in the kingdom of God? Jesus said to him, There was once a man who was giving a great feast, to which he invited many people. When it was time for the feast, he sent his servants to tell his guests, Come, everything is ready. But they all began one after another to make excuses. The first one told the servant, I have bought a field and must go look at it. Please accept my apologies. Another one said, I bought five pairs of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please accept my apologies. Another one said, I have just gotten married and for that reason I cannot come. Tempted to make a joke here, but I won't. Then the servant went back and told all this to his master. The master was furious and said to his servant, Hurry out to the streets and alleys of the town and bring back the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Soon the servant said, Your order has been carried out, sir, but there is room for more. So the master said to the servant, Go out to the country roads and the lanes and make people come in, so that my house will be full. I tell you that none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus not say? And how earnestly do we look to him? for the direction in these cases. Well, you know, Jesus said that he is going to exclude those people who do not humble themselves, who assume that because of who they are, they've got a reservation at the great feast at the end of the age, the wedding feast of the Lamb. They're there because of who they are, but not because of what they did. Jesus turns that on his head, 
said, I am here to reserve a place of honor for those people who have been ignored, abused, and marginalized. Do we look earnestly to him for guidance in these matters? I often wonder, and I often wonder whether even Christians who know these passages, who are not unfamiliar with these parables told in Luke chapter 14, do they understand how seriously Jesus takes them? These notions of taking care of the needy, these notions of forgiving. Matthew chapter 18 verse 21 through 19 verse 12 gives us this account, more from Jesus, another parable in fact. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, if my brother keeps on sinning against me, how many times do I have to forgive him? Seven times? No, not seven times, answered Jesus, but seventy times seven. Because the kingdom of heaven is like this. Once there was a king who decided to check on his servants' accounts. He had just begun to do so when one of them was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. The servant did not have enough to pay his debt. So the king ordered him to be sold as a slave with his wife and children and all that he had in order to pay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before the king. Please be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you everything. The king felt sorry for him. So he forgave him the debt and let him go. Then the man went out and met one of his fellow servants who owed him a few dollars. He grabbed the servant, started choking him, saying, Pay me back what you owe me, he said. His fellow servant fell down and begged him, Be patient with me, I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he had him thrown into jail until he should pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were very upset and went to the king and told him everything. So he called the servant in. You worthless slave, he said. I forgave you the whole amount you owed me just because you asked me to. You should have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you. The king was very angry, and he sent his servant to jail to be punished until he should pay back the whole amount. Remember, the million dollars. And Jesus concluded, This is how my Father in heaven will treat every one of you, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. We often hear this talk about proportionality. A lot of people are very quick to talk about how small their sins are compared to how big someone else's sin is. And again, we start talking about the relationship in the church between gays and lesbians, and what I would describe as the religious right, what you tend to see is people who've decided which sin is the biggest sin of all. And it's usually some sort of sexual sin. It used to be adultery, but now it's, it's homosexuality. And because that sin is so big, that sin's a million dollars, that they're not at all worried about the things that they've done wrong, including judging people harshly, not taking care of the sick, the poor, the widows, the orphans. God is telling us, Jesus is telling us in this passage, that you should not get too wound up in how small your debts are compared to how big someone else's debts are. Because you should forgive even a bigger amount. In this case, it's an easy parable. It's appropriately exaggerated. The focus is heightened to such an extent that we're hearing about a king who, for millions of dollars of debt forgiven, is outraged that somebody wouldn't you know, overlook 10 bucks you know, on, on a loan at that level. But the story would be just as valid if it was flipped the other way around, except that it's unlikely that one of these servants would have had a $10 million promissory note coming his way. Picking back up with verse 19, when Jesus finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the territory of Judea on the other side of the Jordan River. 
large crowds followed him, and he healed some there. Some Pharisees came to him and tried to trap him by asking, Does our law allow a man to divorce his wife for whatever reason he wishes? Jesus answered, Haven't you read the scriptures that says, In the beginning the Creator made people male and female? And God said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and unite with his wife, and the two will become one? So there are no longer two, but one. No human being must separate then what God has joined together. The Pharisees asked him, Why then did Moses give the law for a man to hand his wife a divorce notice and send her away? Jesus answered, Moses gave you permission to divorce your wives because you were so hard to teach. But it was not like that at the time of creation. I tell you then that any man who divorces his wife for any cause other than unfaithfulness commits adultery if he marries some other woman. His disciples said to him, If this is how it is to be between man and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus answered, This teaching doesn't apply to everyone, but only to those whom God has given it. For there are different reasons why men cannot marry. Some because they're born that way. Others because men made them that way. And others do not marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let him who can accept this teaching do so. This is a concept that I've shared before. Most recently on um, an interview with Rick and Amy Moyer on Take Him With You. The Take Him With You show during the summertime had a two-part episode, uh, Getting to Know Greg. And in there I shared this passage and my perspective on the passage that the original word being used there, translated most often as eunuch, gives us an interesting perspective. I think we've already heard enough passages in what Jesus is doing inside his parables to know that he's not wasting a lot of words. If you are a Christian, you believe that Jesus is God incarnate and therefore perfect, that he is the infallible word of God, as John tells us in the very first verse of his gospel that uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. So we don't believe that Jesus makes a lot of mistakes. He doesn't uh, He doesn't repeat himself unnecessarily. He doesn't make uh, you know foolish repetition. But even if you're not a believer, I think just reading some of these parables, hearing some of these stories told the way Jesus is said to have told them, is going to give you the perspective that this is somebody who uses, who crafts stories very wisely, who puts them together in such a way to, in some cases, put people in a corner. He put not just that lawyer in the parable of the Good Samaritan in a corner. He put all the people who were listening, who assumed the Jews were better than Samaritans, put them in a corner, forced them to deal with things, because he crafted his storytelling in a very particular way. So here Jesus, talking about this concept of eunuch, and saying there's really three kinds. And these are three people for whom marrying a woman doesn't make much sense. That this doctrine of of, um, of men having to marry women only applies to some people. It doesn't apply to all people. Three people it doesn't apply to are people who were born that way. We'll get back to that concept in just a second. People who have been castrated by the king and, you know, therefore not that much interested in marrying women, incapable of procreating, um, being used as slaves and servants in places where they'd be interacting with the concubines in the king's court. And this would be a precautionary measure to make sure that no offspring were being born to the king's household that weren't the king's doing. And finally, others who do not marry for the kingdom of sake of the kingdom of heaven because they've gone off to do missionary work. So you've got some folks who Jesus says or describes in this using this term eunuch to say they are capable of marrying women, perhaps on some level deeply want to have a family or committed sort of that idea of having a family someday, but they choose not to. They voluntarily give it up. 
because they're going to go off uh, in missionary journeys, not unlike what Paul did throughout the book of Acts. There are other people who you know, they can't marry because you know they're, they've had their testicles removed. Simple as that. And other people who have not had their testicles removed any more than those missionaries had their testicles ritually removed. But despite the fact that they're not, they've then been castrated medically, and they haven't in some ways been sort of castrated spiritually, circumcised in a, in a different sort of a way, still have no interest in marrying women because they were born that way. My perspective is that Jesus is probably the first person in recorded history to use that expression to refer to people that we would describe today as homosexual. He didn't elaborate on it, because I believe that the concept that he was dropping there would have been very, very hard for his group of disciples to understand. It was not something that would have been a, t a typical form of relationship during Jesus' era. And yet here we are in an era where you might describe this as a very typical form of relationship, and we assume that Jesus is going to judge this kind of relationship with extreme harshness, threatening to stone people to death. American missionaries going off to Africa and encouraging African governments to put people in prison for the rest of their life, or even put people in prison who are aware of a homosexual couple and don't rat them out, put them in prison for hard time, five to ten years, something like that. And we're obsessed with this notion that Jesus would agree with our political perspective when Jesus Christ says some were born that way. Well, there's earlier references to the concept of eunuch. And this is a passage that was actually called to my attention by someone on Facebook named Kurgan. I shared my perspective about the whole of Matthew chapter 19. Not just the man will leave his father and marry a woman and they'll be joined as one flesh, but the rest of the story that Jesus tells here. When Jesus directly makes an exception to that principle. Kurgan called my attention toward Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 8. And in the uh, Old Testament prophecy, it says this, The Lord says to his people, Do what is right and just, for soon I will save you. I will bless those who always observe the Sabbath and do not misuse it. I will bless those who do nothing evil. A foreigner who has joined the Lord's people should not say, The Lord will not let me worship with his people. A man who has been castrated should never think that because he cannot have children, he can never be part of God's people. The Lord says to such a man, If you honor me by observing the Sabbath, and if you do what pleases me and faithfully keep my covenant, then your name will be remembered in my temple among the people longer than if you had sons or daughters. You will never be forgotten. I'm going to suggest that homosexual people, who have heard the call of the Lord, who want to be part of the church, who want to be actively involved in ministry, are being described here in this passage. This is a literal eunuch being described in Isaiah, but it ties directly with the examples of figurative eunuchs that Jesus would later mention as recorded in Matthew's gospel. You will never be forgotten that You'll, you'll be remembered in my temple and among my people longer than if you had had sons or daughters. You will have a legacy that has nothing to do with childbearing. And yet the church today seems to be obsessed with drawing a hard connection between marriage and childbirth. Picking up in Isaiah, verse 6, And the Lord says to those foreigners who become part of his people, who love him and serve him, who observe the Sabbath and faithfully keep his covenant, I will bring you to Zion, my sacred hill give you joy in my house of prayer, and accept the sacrifices you offer on my altar. My temple will be called a house of prayer for the people of all nations. The sovereign Lord who has brought his people, Israel, home from exile, has promised that he will bring still other people to join them. 
I think most Christians take comfort in the connection between this passage and what Paul would later do with the Gentiles. When Paul says, hey, the Lord promised that he was going to reconcile the Jews and the Gentiles, that there is no Jew or Gentile at the foot of the cross. There's no slave and free. There's no male and female. In my opinion, there is no gay or straight distinction at the foot of the cross. It is this passage, in part, that Paul would have been referring to. The United States of America, which, you know, for some of the things that we've done wrong lately, as a country with a legacy that goes back more than 200 years, we have a lot to be proud of. We have been in our history, a country that brings the foreigner in and gives them a place in our society, much like Isaiah describes here in chapter 56. I'm going to catch my breath here for a moment, perhaps play an ad or two, and come back with some of the passages, some of the other passages that perhaps speak directly to Jesus and encountering people who, by our modern standard, we might say had a homosexual orientation. We talk a lot of times, I do in particular, that Jesus had nothing to say about homosexuality. Therefore, Jesus who fulfilled all the law and replaced it with the commandments that we love God and love our neighbor as we love ourselves, hasn't put any asterisk on that. But in some ways that might be overstating it just a little bit. In little moments like born that way, and a couple of passages I'll share here in a minute, Jesus perhaps does encounter homosexual people and how he interacts with them and what he says about them, and what he doesn't say, like go and sin no more, are very, very interesting. Music by Kevin McLeod. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at Pride48.com. 